Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good morning. This week I am talking to the kombucha king Adam Vorney of Jara Kombucha and his beautiful dog Riley. Uh, please excuse the squeaking. I promise you the conversation is worth it. Um what are we on? This is episode four of Mold to Gold. Ooh. And I'm here with Adam. I was realizing on the way over here, I don't know your last oh, name. It's, <laughs> it's Vani. Vani. I don't know your last name either. It's Hope. Oh, okay. I um, You're in my phone as Adam Jar. <laughs> you know, like a lot of people think my last name is Jar. I get, e- whenever I get emails about prospective, you know, um, stockists or something, they're like, hi, Adam Jar. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> It works. I think it does work. It's a good yeah. last name. <laughs> I should just go by it. <laughs> um, but yeah, Vani. Vani is my last name. Okay. Where where does that? Where's your heritage? Italian. My um my dad's my great grandfather is from um, Lucca, Italy, in Tuscany. That's the name of my son actually, Luca. Okay. And uh, he he moved over to America in the 1920s. Uh, and uh, my grandfather was born in LA. My dad. And so that's that's where I get Vani from. Oh, amazing. So Adam is um, the founder of Jara Kombucha, and how long ago was it we met? Four, five years yeah, ago? Yeah, it was a long time ago. It was when you were doing the great uh, Windmill Street. Oh yeah, when I was doing Culture for the first, That's right, first yeah. time. Um, so I'd like to, yeah, just just like go your whole journey. Like, how did you end up in? Why are you in London? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a very long story. I mean, I'm I'm legally allowed to live in the UK because my mom's side of the family is Welsh. So my grandfather is from, um, from a town called Ammonford in Wales, South Wales. And so I had ancestry and I was able to use that to move over to the UK for the first time in 2011. Um, and I stayed for two years and lived in Hackneywick, just down the canal here, in an old shipbuilding factory where I met my wife. And, um, and it was, um, 
yeah, it was a really fun time. Lots of raves, <laughs> lots of, um, I, I came to play music, uh, and I ended up working in a cafe that my friends own, the friends that I eventually started Jar with, who also own Crate uh, and okay. Silo um, with Doug. So, um, but I left after two years, and I, I went traveling with my partner, and, and, um, and then we moved back to Los Angeles, and then a weird series of events, um, which included the apartment I was supposed to be moving into in San Francisco burning down on my way to move in, me turning around and driving back to L.A. And (laughs) my friends uh, who who I lived in Hackney Wick with um, happened at the same time to be uh, coming through Los Angeles on a layover on their way back from New Zealand where they're from to London where they were running Crate Brewery. Uh, and because I was back in L.A. due to that fire, I had no place to live. I was with my parents, and they extended their layover and came to stay um, with me and my parents, and we came up with the idea for JAR. sat around my parents' kitchen table. Oh, that's so funny. It was just totally a lot of random, synchronistic-type things that uh, we came up with that idea, and two months later, I was back in London, and we were experimenting on, on kombucha, uh, starting at a very small scale, but none of us knew how to make it. We honestly started a brewery and came up with the idea before we even knew how to make kombucha. <laughs> it was kind of ridiculous. So there was, at this time, kombucha was already huge in L.A. What year was this? 2015. The very, it was January 2015. Uh, and, yeah, the industry there was pretty well-defined. Um, there, you know, GT's Kombucha, who's still the, bigger, the biggest brand in the world, was, um, you know, they were probably producing something like 60 or 70 percent of all the kombucha in America uh, and nowadays I think account for like 50 or something percent of the market but um, yeah it was sort of a household thing my grandparents were drinking it at the time they were in their 90s my cousins were drinking it who were like five and six years old instead of coca-cola it was just it was just a normal thing that you found in people's houses at least in California but in the UK it was unless you traveled to, you know, New York or Los Angeles or Australia, um, then generally you weren't really aware of kombucha. So we saw an opportunity to make it um, more mainstream and to create like a a cool brand. That was sort of the thing, like let's make kombucha, you know, it's sad to say, but let's make kombucha for hipsters. (laughs) Let's make kombucha cool. Let's, Let's build a brewery in a warehouse in Hackney Wick and open a tap room and see what happens. Oh shit, sorry. That's okay. Off. It's like a pager. It is. It's um. I got a minimal phone, so it it only makes calls and does texts. And you um. Amazing. It's like a Nokia 3310. Exactly. That's <laughs> that's what it's replicated. And um, and uh, it just uh, simplifies my life. So I'm not always. I, the the amount of times I pick that up to scroll the internet, and I'm like, this doesn't even have internet. <laughs> that's so good. I need to get one. <laughs> it's brilliant. It changes things, um, especially when you have a kid. You don't want them growing up in front of a, you know, you being on a, on a smartphone all the time. My son swipes on books because he thinks they're screens. It, it, that's when I was like, no more. So I got one of those. Anyway, sorry about that. No, no, that's fine. And um, so it was 2015. Yeah. And the guys, your friends from New Zealand, they crate was already quite established at this point. Yeah, they um, they started. Crate in 2012, maybe 2012 for the Olympics. Uh, okay. They got the uh, lease for that uh, this old print factory 
um, and, uh, and, and won the sort of bid for it. And it was sort of the first pub in that area of London and really brought together the community. And it was going strong in 2015. They were doing really well. And the brewery was pumping out a lot of beer. And they were thinking about starting a bakery, actually. But then when they came to visit me, I took them to Whole Foods Market, and they're like, holy shit, like, there's, like, 50 different kombucha brands here. It's this like is huge. It's like a wall, yeah. Yeah, a wall, like, <laughs> bigger than this, two times the length of this of just kombucha. It was the most um, refrigerated shelf space in the whole store was kombucha. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and that's sat around the kitchen table just, you know, chatting shit, drinking kombucha, and uh, I had no job. I was living with my parents, and, um, and we just... We're like, well, how about we start a kombucha brewery? And we did. <laughs> that's just, that's it. We just did it. So, um, where, um, where did you get your first SCOBY? Did you bring it from the States? Or? Not for the UK. I, so I, right after they left, I was like, well, actually, we're going to do this. Okay. Um, so I searched in Google how to make kombucha and watched like <laughs> the five YouTube videos that were available at the time and then found a woman called, uh, her name's Hannah Crum, but she calls herself the kombucha mama. And okay. she's like one of the leading experts on kombucha fermentation in the States. Um, and she was teaching workshops out of her kitchen in Venice Beach. So I signed up for a course and she gave me my first SCOBY, a jar. And she taught me how to brew with like four other people in her kitchen, <laughs> in her house. And, uh, and she's now the head of KBI, which is the International Trade Organization for Kombucha, Kombucha Brewers International. Um, and she's really paved the way for kombucha internationally as a category. But um, I wasn't able to bring the culture on the plane, or at least from what I checked with the airline, they're like, you can't bring live cultures. And yeah. So um, my friends had, uh, I believe, inherited a SCOBY from a friend of theirs who was brewing like on a small scale at home, and we, um, and we started with that. Yeah. And then also we eventually started, we needed more to scale up, so we, we spent... 500 pounds um, with Happy Kombucha. Oh, okay, yeah. And bought basically every SCOBY they had <laughs> multiple times because we had so many batches that went off, we just needed to top up constantly. And then we bought starter liquid from Gary Lay, who runs Go Kombucha. At the time, he was selling okay. 750 mil bottles of super potent starter liquid. Um, and, uh, and we stocked up on that too, so it was a combination. Oh, awesome. At the beginning, like, can you can you talk me through your journey of? You said you had a couple of failed batches. I imagine that was that was a stressful process. Yeah, it was uh, really silly to imagine that we could take um, a five liter Kilner jar and turn it into two thousand liters overnight, and that's really what we tried to do. I mean, we brewed for a couple of months in Kilner jars and had more and more of them, and then just spent I don't know five grand on two giant 2000 liter stainless steel tanks um, that were tall and skinny, which really isn't ideal for commercial kombucha fermentation. You really want squat and wide so you have more um, surface area and, uh, and, the, and basically oxygen is able to go from the bottom to the top more efficiently. Um, and so they didn't really work very well. So we took everything we had, we dumped it into one of these tanks. And, um, and <laughs> the thing was, these tanks were custom built with a with a jacket around the outside and you're supposed to connect it to the boiler and it was supposed to keep it at a, at a temperature that you know 25 degrees or something and um 
and it just didn't work. The, set, the guy that installed it didn't do it correctly. The boiler we had wasn't fit for purpose. So what we ended up doing was taking cardboard boxes and duct taping them around the bottom of this tank and putting a space heater underneath and heating it from the bottom, which now we know <laughs> stimulates yeast growth when you heat from the bottom. And also um, it was too hot and it was inconsistent and it, it essentially made our batch super boozy, super yeasty. It smelled like farts. It was disgusting. We had to throw away all of the kombucha that we made for the very first time on a commercial scale. There was no way of reversing it. Um, it was just too, too gone. And so we had to start from scratch. So that was like, that was the first of our explorations into com commercial kombucha fermentation. And then slowly we realized, okay, the best way of doing it is to heat the room to an ambient temperature. Um, and then we, I mean, honestly, we, we had no idea how to do anything on a commercial scale. Because the guys knew how to make beer, we assumed that, that we could just scale up kombucha just like you would beer, but it's actually way harder, as you know, um, scaling up any, any kind of live ferment like that, especially one that's exposed to oxygen rather than an anaerobic ferment. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, and also I messaged like every kombucha brand that I knew in America. I sent them emails saying, hey, listen, uh, I'm an American. I'm, I've started a kombucha brewery in, in the UK. There's no competition, but can you give us some advice? And nobody, either really? they didn't respond or they just said, no, we, we don't do that. Um, we did find a couple people who charged us like hundreds of dollars for like a 30 minute chat. And there was no, no useful commercial advice given. Um, so that, that really frustrated me. And, and since then, particularly during lockdown, I, I started doing like a lot of like um, Q and A's and videos and stuff like that, where you, we demystify commercial kombucha fermentation because it's it's actually not as hard as people think, yeah. and that information isn't proprietary. It's no. it's ridiculous. It's you know, ancient that, information. Yeah. yeah, and like the fact that people are safeguarding it, particularly in America, where it's a very competitive industry, I think that was the um, the reason why. So. Um, but yeah, it was it was a journey, man, in order to get a consistent product. But it took us, I would say it took us um, almost 12 months to get something that we were happy enough with to put into a bottle and, sh and sell. And so we, we didn't start selling in, in bottles until April of, of 2016. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So that's when we launched for the our first bottled product into Harrods, actually, which was a totally oh, random thing. you went straight thing. to... <laughs> Just a random connection through a, a mutual friend. The buyer knew somebody. They were trying to, like, um, modernize their range. And they're like, oh, it could be cool to have something from East London and West London. And kombucha is this new trend. And they took a leap of faith and put jar on the shelves. And, and um, that was the beginning of sort of our journey. We're like, oh, my God. We start here and then we'll see where it goes. <laughs> and so, do they still stock you today? They do. Yeah, <coughs> still, still to this day. Oh, that's amazing. It's my, uh, it's my proudest achievement. Even though they don't go through many bottles at all, it's just, <laughs> it's just. Um, when we used to come to visit my family in Wales, um, when I was a kid, we would stay in London for a few days, and my parents would always take my sister and I to Harrods, and we'd have tea. And like that was the thing. My mom's like, "We're going for tea in scones," and and we'd always walk through the food halls, and it was like this magical, like Willy Wonka type place. So the fact yeah, yeah. that that we got our kombucha in there for the first time was pretty surreal. Um, but yeah. That's yeah, that's cool. a that's a cool place to start. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. The um. 
from there, did you you just sort of like reached out to independents? Or what was it at the beginning? Because you said you also opened a tap room. We did. So um, so we opened the what we called a jar bar. <laughs> we, I mean, initially this... So Mix Garage was the warehouse space that we started brewing in. And it was a storage space for Crate um, where they put all their beer in their kegs and stuff. And, um, and then they built a mezzanine in there to give them more space. And then underneath the mezzanine... Um, we put in like a shipping container type bar uh, and we put two tanks down the back and we put a fountain and we had some taps and we sold beer and cider and wine and we put our kombucha in corny kegs and we served it on draft and that that's where we first started offering our kombucha um, to people and getting feedback and we got really bad feedback initially <laughs> we got really bad like reviews, Time Out came and tasted it, and uh, and they said it tasted like gone off of vinegar, and that you should never go to Hackney Wick for kombucha, and it was like really demoralizing. But um, it was cool because it gave us like an honest understanding of what people thought of our kombucha. And to be honest, nobody bought kombucha when they came there. They just bought beer. They bought, you know, they had cocktails. Berber and Q opened like a little pop up restaurant. We had DJs, our friends come and DJ, and then it, eventually that turned into a, like a nightclub. So for up until the beginning of lockdown, Mix Garage was like a really popular like techno nightclub where there just happened to be kombucha and beer and stuff and there was a little bar there. But um, that's where we started brewing. That's where we started, um, uh, you know, putting our kombucha into kegs and offering it to people for the first time. But um, that went on for for you know, from November until April until we started bottling the kombucha because we thought it tasted good enough to actually put out into the market. But in uh, terms so of... So the kombucha was actually bad. It was really bad. It was so <laughs> The problem was it was so acidic, we couldn't control the acetic acid level. So it was more right. like an apple cider vinegar sparkling, right. which actually nowadays I would prefer. The more sour, the better. Uh, in my Yeah, yeah, I like it really sour. Yeah, most, most kombucha drinkers do. Most... Um, but I guess from a commercial perspective, it didn't really work considering kombucha wasn't a, wasn't a product that people were aware of. They're like, this is just sparkling vinegar. Like, this is disgusting. <laughs> and and so, you got like a pint. Yeah, you, yeah, you would get a full pint of the stuff. Imagine like a pint of, of carbonated apple cider vinegar with like maybe a little bit of ginger juice in it, which is... For me, I'm like, that sounds amazing. But for people that can't deal with acidity and... You're, on a, you're on a night out. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell is this? Like, and we were making cocktails with it, but didn't tell people we were making cocktails with a kombucha base. And people hated the cocktails initially because they're like, this is, what is this, vinegar and gin? Like, with lime and, and, like, agave nectar? Like, it was... It just... It was very... Um, the kombucha wasn't balanced, and that's that's you know when you first start making kombucha, it's it's very difficult to understand how to prioritize certain acids, um, and acetic is the one that really kicks off because acetobacter is the main strain in most brews, so um, that's what's prioritized. So it took us a long time to figure out how to tone that back and amplify the gluconic acid, which is the more fruity, appley flavor that you get from kombucha. But um, our customers initially came from Crate. Because Crate did wholesale. They had their own vans. Oh, right. They had a sales team. And they had, you know, a couple hundred customers across London. And so they just started offering kombucha to their customers when we launched in April um, uh, as, like, their alcohol alternative. And people were interested. And also because 
um, stores like Whole Foods and Planet Organic, um, they were sort of up on the new trends, um, and they their buyers had traveled to the states. They were they were some of our first customers as well. Uh, They're okay. like, oh, you make kombucha, cool. Well, let's try it out in the stores and. So that's sort of the natural food channel was the easiest one to get into initially yeah. um, because a lot of the people that shop there and that work there were already aware of sort of the fermented drink trend that was happening in the people, States. People buying for health. Yeah, exactly. So that's the, that's the line that we've, we've had to tread. Um, are we a health drink? Are we an alcohol alternative? Are we a cocktail mixer? Like, what are we? Because kombucha is, is so many different things to, to everyone, you know? Yeah. And do you find that you are all of those things? Um, That's what we ended up um, doing. Uh, you know, there's certain brands that have really owned... <laughs> for anyone that's <laughs> listening, this is my dog chewing on her ball in the background. Um, um, there's certain brands that have really owned certain categories, like Real Kombucha. Um, those guys, they have owned the fine dining um, on-trade um, space. So, you know, they're in Michelin star restaurants, and then... Um, and then certain brands have really owned the, the health category um, and really tailor their drinks towards that space. But for us, we sort of saw it as turning up in people's lives at um, whatever point they wanted it to, you know? And it depends. Sometimes you want a kombucha on a hangover. Sometimes you want it in a cocktail. Sometimes you want it pre or post workout. Um, it really depends. And I think the versatility of kombucha and other fermented drinks um, to show up in people's lives in whatever way they want is for me the best way of marketing it because it's a unique drink for for unique individuals you know yeah, yeah. if you pigeonhole yourself as a health drink then you're always a health drink and we also branded it in such a way that it didn't like it 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 looked a little bit more premium than than some of the stuff that was out there at the time uh-huh what was the actual um turning point so when i first came and saw you at jar you were already brewing in these wide um shallow um them. Yeah, stainless steel tanks. Like, um, who who got you onto that, or that was? So eventually, uh, maybe two years in, two or two and a half years in, we um, I don't know how we got in touch with this guy, but we were introduced to a guy named William Organ, who is fascinating dude. He's an Irish guy from Cork, and he um, was one of the few kombucha uh, kombucha experts um, in the world at the time and he um <laughs> he at the time was a um, so he's an irish guy he's an irish guy he's head of quality control for pepsico ireland and he was producing all of the pepsico soft drinks um for the middle east oh really <laughs> yeah and he's a just fascinating guy but he was um he did his dissertation on kombucha and he was a he did his master's in microbiology and he had consulted for some of the biggest brands in the world and he helped develop the the um Kavita product. Kavita is owned by Pepsi, okay. and um, they're they were the first kombucha to use like stevia and erythritol and different a extracts and create like a hybrid type kombucha. Okay. Anyways, he helped design that, and um, and so we ended up having him over for the weekend, and he just schooled us on everything. <laughs> He's like, you don't need a cellulose pellicle. He's like, just use the starter liquid, but harvest it in this way, oxygenate it. Um, as much as possible, prioritize the bacteria growth, get it super acidic, that's your SCOBY. The moment you remove the cellulose, your kombucha is going to ferment more effectively, it's going to be less acetic based, um, it's going to be um, less alcoholic. So he, he taught us that 
little aspect. And he also said, those tanks that you're using, they don't work. You need something <laughs> wide and squat. Yeah. You want that surface area as much as possible. So we changed our, um, our brewing methodology and our tanks as soon as possible after that. And, um, and that's when things really started to shift in terms of uh, creating a more consistent, stable, non-alcoholic product. And I'll be honest, when we first started brewing, it was like before we were in bottle, when we were still selling on the bar, our kombucha was probably one and a half percent. It was definitely <laughs> boozy. It was, you know, and most people's is. Like we did an independent analysis of um, maybe 10 of the, the biggest brands in the UK a couple years ago. And um, more than half of them were, were over 1%. And some of them still are. So a lot of kombucha that you're buying that you think is non-alcoholic is, is actually not, you know? So, and that's, for us, it was really important that you were able to give this to people who don't drink alcohol, to kids, you know? That's the whole idea of kombucha. If you're making an alcoholic drink, that's great, but, um, you know. <laughs> it needs kombucha, to say it. <laughs> yeah, it needs to say if there's booze so people, you know, fully are aware. So I think, yeah, that's like the biggest misnomer about kombucha is the, the pellicle on the top. Yeah. And that being, people know that as the mother. Yeah. And so if you give somebody, like I've, I've given people scobies before, probably after talking to you, where I've, I've literally just given them kombucha vinegar. Yeah. And they're like, no, no, I need the scoby. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, no, this is a scoby. Look at that under a microscope. Yeah, and so maybe maybe that's just, is that why? Because we can't actually physically see the... Yeah, the microbes. I mean, the, the, the way that this guy told it to us, and this is the way I tell it to people, is like the cellulose um, is uh, it's a pellicle. It's like a sponge that is happens to be sat um, in, um, in the bacteria and yeast for an extended period of time. And, it, and it, it's essentially a byproduct of the fermentation. It's cellulose matter that's a byproduct of some of the... Um, I guess sugars, um, but um, if you look at it, I mean, it's like a crisscross pattern, and then and, and soaked into it are strains of bacteria and yeast. That's part of the fabric of these of the cellulose pellicle. But um, the most direct way of of achieving um, a scoby um, is is through the liquid itself. So, say you take a sponge, you drop it in vinegar and then you take that sponge that's soaked in vinegar and you plop it in a jar of kombucha and you ferment with that. It's more effective to squeeze the vinegar out into the jar than it is to use the sponge with the vinegar in it. So it's essentially just holds some of the material, but the material itself, the bacteria and yeast, is, is really a liquid form. And so if you looked at those two things, the pellicle and the starter liquid under a microscope, you'd find that there's a much denser population of bacteria and yeast in the starter liquid. Yeah. Um, and it also means that you have more control over the fermentation in terms of consistency and alcohol control and, and stuff like that. Um, so what we ended up doing was, was building an acetator. We realized, oh shit, like this is almost identical to how apple cider vinegar is produced. Right. So if we build something that is exactly how vinegar is produced, um, then we can probably achieve in a, in a reasonably quick period of time an alcohol-free, super acidic and bacteria-rich starter that is, is al almost uh, exactly like apple cider vinegar. Yeah. Um, and that's what we did, and that's when things really changed. Um, and so that's still how we produce. We produce our, our SCOBY in a giant um, uh, closed-off tank where we control the oxygen flow. Um, and we, uh, we can make a perfectly acidic, bacteria-rich culture that we then use as the base for all of our brews. Right. And so, sorry, so an acetator is 
basically just a tank where you were pumping in oxygen yeah. to maximize. Yeah. Um, sorry, so it goes from, what's the, what's the actual chemical reaction inside the... Well, I mean, if you look at, say, um, apple cider vinegar, it's, it's essentially apple juice with, um, with previous vinegar in there. And what you, what you try to do is you try to, in an anaerobic environment, get the alcohol as high as possible, which seems counterintuitive to what you're trying to produce at the end of the day, which is a non-alcoholic starter liquid, which is your base for your kombucha, that ideally you want to be non-alcoholic as well. But um, um, you basically block off all the oxygen initially and the alcohol spikes up to like 3%, sometimes 4%. And then what we had was sort of um, uh, a Venturi valve with a HEPA filter and this Whirlpool type design that essentially would pump in um, a really high amount of oxygen at, um, at sort of a, a, like a, a certain variable frequency rate and we were able to create like a whirlpool type thing that would oxygenate the kombucha really intensely and then what happens is the um, there's a reaction between the bacteria and yeast and that alcohol is converted into acetic acid by the acetobacter um, and so the alcohol is very efficiently consumed and converted into acid and that's sort of what happens in the apple cider vinegar process as well. So you go from a high alcohol to almost no alcohol and very high um, vinegar content. And that's sort of what you're trying to achieve. Um, and then the more oxygen you get in there, the more bacteria there is. And the bacteria really is the cornerstone of any kombucha ferment. So. And so you go from <coughs> you go from sugar. The sugar is converted into ethanol by the yeast. Yeah, it's converted into, um, so sucrose, in our case, in the case of kombucha, is broken down by the yeast and converted into fructose and glucose, um, and then, and also alcohol. And then in that symbiotic relationship between the bacteria and the yeast, the bacteria shows up and gobbles up the fructose, converts that into acetic acid, it also gobbles up the alcohol, converts that into acetic acid, then it gobbles up the glucose and converts that into gluconic acid. Okay. So the yeast breaks down the sugar, makes it digestible, and then also farts out <laughs> some alcohol, and then the bacteria goes, great, gobble, 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 and then converts that into the acid. So um, it's this really like, basically it's the organisms feeding each other by way of the oxygen and the sugar. And you and it was this. It's glucose to glu glu glucose to gluconic acid. Yeah, and that's the really appley. Yeah, like. that's that sort of. It's tangy, but it's not like um, like as punchy as a vinegar flavor. Um, and you'll find gluconic acid in like a lot of wine cider. So like a really appley, you know, farmy cider has quite a bit of gluconic acid in it. Um, uh -huh. So it is naturally very like it's like green apples. It's like a Granny Smith apple, like a really tart Granny Smith apple versus yeah. a vinegar bomb, which is mainly acetic acid. And so you'll take this bacteria-rich starter, and that's what you'll you'll then put that in a sugary tea. Yep, exactly. And we would pitch 25. We still to this day use 25% starter. Most kombucha ferments, if you look it up online, will say 10% starter or even 5% starter. Um, but then they'll say put in the cellulose pellicle as well. For us, there's no pellicle at all. It's 25% starter. Boom. Um, and we now ferment in three 20,000 liter closed loop <laughs> wow. tanks that are custom designed and have we have um, various circulation techniques and um, heating, cooling, pressurization, all types of stuff. And 
we can go into that later, but but that's that was all designed through the Duval scientists. So we sold the majority of our business to a, a Belgian beer brand called Duval. But the way that we were doing it in Hackney Wick was using our homemade acetator, which by the way, if anyone's tuning in and wants um, the spec for that, I can send you the specs so you can make it yourself. It's really easy and it's cheap. Uh, I mean, considering like how much you'd pay for a new acetator, which would be 50 grand or more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this cost us three and a half grand to make and, um, and it's highly effective. So in this acetator, we could create a thousand liters of super potent starter liquid in 12 days. Which would normally take, under, under circumstances where you didn't have that oxygenation, 12 weeks or more. And that would be would leave you with a boozy starter liquid. And this was 0.02% alcohol or something like that. So almost nothing. So to start with a super bacteria-rich, non-alcoholic, acidic starter, 25% with your sweet tea mix, that would turn over in seven days. Wow. Super efficient and consistent. And so you're saying, so if I was doing this in my home, mm-hmm. I'm putting like 25% starter into, uh, online the recipes vary from like 5% to 12% sugar. Yeah. Ours, I mean, we recommend 50 grams per liter. Okay. I don't know what that is in percent. I think that's 5. 5%. 5%, yeah. That was after years of testing. I mean, we started out with 120 because that's the standard recipe that you find <laughs> online. And we're like, this is way too sugary. Yeah. So then, you know, we went gradually down and we found that our culture functioned optimally at 50. Okay. Um, and we have a, a calculator um, that also I can send. I send, send it to people all the time. You just plug in what the total acidity the sugar of your starter is and then it will spit out the exact recipe you need for the tea oh really so you can adapt it based on your starter and that's sort of what you need to do it's not always going to be perfect unless you have like a completely automated system um and so if i'm obviously you've got this um expensive system in place now if i'm in my home yeah and i've added my (coughs) excuse me i've added my starter to my sweet tea Mm -hmm. Would I then just stir it every day to oxygenate it? Yes, exactly. Um, this is, it's funny because everything you read online or in, or in kombucha fermentation books says, don't, don't agitate the culture, just let it do its thing. But it's so like contrary to like what your what the desired impact is of, of the fermentation. Like when you allow the cellulose pellicle to form on top and you leave it, it creates an anaerobic environment, which creates you know, um, generally an overgrowth of yeast and the bacteria don't have any oxygen to thrive and, and ferment efficiently. So what we recommend is um, 25% starter and you can buy starter online. There's places you can purchase it or you can make your own. You can leave kombucha for a month um, or you can just inherit it from somebody. But 25% starter then say your sweet tea, 50 grams of sugar, um, whatever amount of tea you want to use, anywhere between two to eight grams of tea, depending on how caffeinated you want it to be. Um, and, uh, and then you essentially leave that, we recommend, for about four days. And actually don't touch it for that period of time. And when you start to see a layer form on top, that's when you take that off and then you start stirring. So you okay. sort of let the process unfold for just a few days. And then when it starts becoming anaerobic with that layer forming on top, you just take that off and at that point, the ideal scenario is to stir constantly. So one way of achieving that is if you're brewing at home on a slightly bigger scale, getting an aquarium pump and just putting a hose in there and just bubbling the liquid constantly because oh, you're wow. getting oxygen in there and feeding the bacteria. 
Um, but another way of doing it is just getting a spoon in there three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and stirring it for a couple minutes. And, um, and then you're getting oxygen in there, you're moving everything around. Um, the bacteria tends to sit on the top, so you really want to distribute that throughout the, all the liquid right. so that it ferments as efficiently as possible. Um, and, um, and that's, yeah, that's how we recommend it. And, you know, we have a recipe on our Instagram and our website, which is almost the identical recipe we still use to this day. Um, which talks through that whole process. But all of these things I wish we'd known at the beginning because it would have made our lives a hell of a lot easier, which is why I, I try and give this information to as many people as possible just to save them the headache of like <laughs> having to go through years of failed batches and incorrect equipment and misinformation. And like there's so much stuff out there that's just not true when it comes to kombucha. Yeah, it's it's such a... And it's such a hotly disputed topic as well, because people yeah. have been doing it one way in their kitchen forever, yeah. and they're like, "No, my grandma yeah. taught me this." Or it's true. I mean, it's it's steeped in folklore and tradition from ancient China to, you know, eventually um, making its way into like Eastern Europe and and uh, and being brewed. And you know, I've taught a bunch of workshops, and um, I would say maybe five or ten different times I've had someone say, "My grandmother used to make this my whole childhood." You know, like. I've been drinking kombucha since I was two years old. So it's, it was very common in Russia and in Poland um, and other Eastern European countries um, where, um, where it was brought across the Silk Road and was, is made in households as like a home-brewed soft drink that was you know, consumed by families and was said to be good for your health and also was just like a social drink. It's oh, really, wow. It was really cheap to make. So there's so much history in it. And so the, the modernization of kombucha fermentation definitely pushes certain people's buttons, especially those who are still doing it the old-fashioned way, which I totally respect because in some ways, doing it the old-fashioned way tastes better on certain occasions, a little funkier. It's, it's like sometimes it's boozy. It's more acidic. It's more like a natural wine than a commercial kombucha. Yeah, so it yeah, depends like on what you're trying cider. to do. Totally. So if you want to achieve that, then 100% do it, do it the old-fashioned way. But... Um, if you're trying to make a commercial product um, or a, like really clean, consistent product that's non-alcoholic, that's that's the way that we do it. You know? Yeah. No, that's so amazing. I hadn't thought about how like its journey from east to west. You reckon Marco Polo was? <laughs> he may have. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, kombucha culture. <laughs> originally, you know, nobody knows how it first started, but the story that I sort of tell myself is that it, it must have been made by accident. So it was probably June, um, a June ferment, so green tea and honey that, that first created the, the kombucha culture. So I think June has existed longer than kombucha because there was no refined sugar in ancient China. It was only honey and tea. And, um, and somebody probably sweetened a pot of honey with, with um, uh, or sorry, a pot of tea with some honey and, um, and left it out. And there was an interaction of wild bacteria and yeast from this village or wherever it was. And, and it you know, turned into the first kombucha ferment. So um, that's sort of how it originated. And then moved to Japan, all across different parts of Asia, and, and then eventually picked up by, um, they say it was by Polish workers in Mongolia in the 1800s that brought it across. But there's no real evidence of that. Um, but uh, it was really popular, actually, in Eastern Europe and Russia until the late 1980s, until the Soviet Union collapsed. And then the market was flooded with Western soft drinks, and everyone stopped making kombucha. Oh, really? And now... Now, like, 
I get contacted by Russian brewers all the time saying, hey, like, I'm using my grandmother's recipe or, like, we're bringing it back. And, you know, it's like it's becoming so trendy again. Oh, wow. It's really cool. That's awesome. No, it's it's one of the things that always makes me laugh as well about people who aren't um, haven't really, I don't know, aren't necessarily into fermentation. And they're like, so so you're telling me a kombucha is like this this line that goes back like thousands of years like <laughs> that can't be true I'm like <laughs> it is i mean it's just like all fermented things like yeah, it's just like self, self it's ancient wisdom you know it was i mean it was all of these things were initially <clears throat> cultivated by necessity there was no other way of of storing your food or vegetables you know during the winter or you know you needed to ferment things in order for them to last um and uh, and kombucha is just one of those things um it's yeah it's like steeped in like folklore and like myth and tradition and it said that samurai used to carry flasks of kombucha into battle and um <laughs> that kombucha was was um held only for the royal court of china and given only to emperors and, and members of the court and um you know and now you can buy it on the shelves of every coffee shop in london but it's i mean all those things you know from miso to kimchi to sauerkraut to kefir all these things they're ancient you know uh-huh. and we're just adapting them to the modern world but they go back much longer than us thank thank you for being so candid about <laughs> uh, that's like such valuable information i it's i uh i mean it's not it's just uh it it really comes from a place of just being really I was really pissed off for a long time because of the fact that I I loved kombucha and um, and I thought that there would be more openness in the industry um, as there is in beer and coffee and other you know big drinks industries where, where information is shared freely and um, kombucha for some reason particularly in America was very closed off and I was like no we're not gonna we're not going to do that here, you know? Uh-huh. And so actually in, in the UK and in Europe in general, there's like a real open quality to um, dialogue around kombucha, um, sharing, you know, selling equipment and stuff, uh, just talking through everything, you know? Like, I'll reach out to somebody. You're very loud, Riley. <laughs> You're breathing very hard. Why don't you just chill? Um, and um, everyone helps each other, you know? If somebody has, uh, if they've encountered an issue, they'll send... You know, the group and email, you know, whether, yeah. whether it's um, L.A. Brewery or um, Go Kombucha or Equinox Kombucha or, you know, Fixate or Real Kombucha. Everyone's like really friendly with each other yeah. for most of the time. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that's really important in an industry that's still very small. You know, when you're in the world of fermentation, you think everyone knows about it. But then when you step outside, you're like. <laughs> Actually, maybe one percent of the entire population of the city of London even knows what kombucha is, <laughs> you know, let alone fermentation. So yeah, no, I've I've definitely that's all that I've experienced in the fermentation world is like just outrageous generosity and mm. people trying to help each other out because it's I think there's a a confusion around competition as well because there's so much. There's so much for everybody. Like yeah. there's an abundance totally, of, um, totally. of new customers, of new people to teach. And, yeah. And I don't ever feel like I'm competing with anybody else. Yeah, for um, sure. And also like people that ferment um, 
we were sort of talking, alluding to earlier that like, it's a it's a colorful cast of characters, like really interesting, super passionate people that have um, really interesting stories to tell. Um, I mean, people that I've met in the world of fermentation are some of the most interesting people I've ever met, and um, and some of the most passionate, and some of the most forward thinking, and resourceful, and just genuine people. And I think that that shines through in 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 the work that they do, and and their generosity to share you know particularly here in the uk it's like people are very very open and very connected in this world at least i've found maybe that's because i sort of force that upon certain people but i don't know <laughs> but in, in general that's sort of um that's sort of the vibe i think you know so you've been here you've been in london t is it 10 years yeah since 2000. And you reckon you're here for 10 more? You said today's your, your son's birthday. It's his first birthday today, yeah. Um, well, we, you know, my wife and I have been in Hackney since since we first met, and um, we're going to, yeah, we, we've just sold our apartment. We just accepted an offer, and we're going to move to the countryside. Eventually, we want to live off-grid in, like, the Y Valley and have an eco-home <laughs> really? and, like, just have land and, and, uh, and just live as simply as humanly possible but for now there's more to do and um coming into london a couple times a week is fine so <laughs> we'll settle for a midway point up until that up until okay, that nice stage. so it's like a it's a stop off before you go fully yeah until we go <laughs> fully like yeah fully wild fully off grid um but i mean there's something about the uk that's there's just a quality to the to the physical land that like I've always felt connected to. I mean, I'm from California, and I love California. It's, it's my home. It's a very special place, but it feels, at certain times, it feels slightly artificial and a little too built up and not wild enough. Um, and unfortunately, the places that are wild enough in California are burning down. Um, and the UK is actually one of the safest places to be with climate change right now, at least in high ground, <laughs> high areas. Um, and. Yeah, it's future-proofing, but also there's just like this has become home now because of all the people that I've met along the way, you know um, My wife is British. My family's Welsh. My son is British. He doesn't even have an American passport I'm excited to grow up, you know, have a son grow up that has an accent <laughs> Doesn't sound like me But um, yeah, dude, it's uh, The UK is a very special place 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.